how do we really live truly authentic lives on our own terms that give us a sense of fulfillment and mm -hmm. meaning, right? And I think at the end of the day, one of the things that we do as artists is engage in the systematic ritualistic killing of our own ego. Welcome to The Well, I'm Anson Mount. And I am Brandon Edgens. And Brandon, it's probably fair to say that you and I are both fans of classical European music. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what? What's so funny about that? I don't know, I've never heard it, but, it, but it, I don't know. I don't know. You've never heard it, heard it put classical European music? I guess so, yes. I, I haven't seen that section at the record store, but I'm sure it exists. Exactly. And that's part of what we're going to get into in this story. Um, but I thought we could play a little game to kick things off. All right. So I thought uh, maybe I'd play a piece of music and you try to tell me who the composer is. Oh, Lord. All right. You ready? Uh, yeah. Okay, here we go. No, I mean I'm, I'm better at periods than I am composers. Um, what's weird is that I, it sounds like a drunk Vivaldi. That's a good description, and I would agree with you. I mean, it, you would want to. It sounds very in a weird way. It sounds contemporary. But it also sounds like it's a bridge between uh, Baroque and Romanticism. But yeah. I don't know who I don't know who that composer would be. All right, but the game is you got to guess. You got to take it. <laughs> you got to take a guess. <laughs> I'm gonna come up with somebody who's neither. Um, I mean, I want to say Bach. You got it. Okay. So here's my question, though. Can you tell mm -hmm. me what that piece of music is? The name of the piece of music? Yes, what is the name of that piece of music? Um, I have forgotten it. I want to say, I know it's not Paco Bell. But something in you told you to say Bach, right? Even though you didn't know the piece of music. So right. what is it about that music that tells you that is Bach? Um, uh, meter, uh, an, an attention to, well, I hear two things. I hear meter, um, an attention, uh, um, I want to say mathematical. I mean, some people would describe it that way. Right. That, well, that's that's one way of looking at it. I mean, for me, I know that that's Bach because Bach has a, a really specific kind of sadness running through a lot of his solo string work. And I'm not sure quite how to describe it, but when I hear it, it feels like Bach. Mm -hmm. But the episode that I'm going to play for you, it's not actually about... Johann Sebastian Bach. It's about the guy who you hear playing Bach. His name is Vijay Gupta.
the music I've been playing a lot of is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, who we always see as this, you know, unfriendly, jowly German dude who's sitting with his back to you at the at the organ. But I've been reading about Bach's life and reading about the vulnerability and loss in Bach's life. Bach was an orphan and his first wife died very suddenly. What does it mean to be losing your mind? Anyway, and and he, he, he basically walked into his home after four months of being on the road with his boss and his wife had already been dead and buried for, for four months. And he didn't know. He just walked in and she, was, she wasn't there anymore. Can you imagine the loss that that was? And he, and, and he poured that grief into these pieces for a single violin. Like, why did he pick the violin for those pieces? And his, his experience with grief, I think, is poured into these pieces of music. And yet, a lot of them are dances. And so I've been asking this question, you know, what does it mean to dance through sorrow? As you can hear, Vijay is basically the biggest, and I think he would agree with this assessment, he's the biggest violin nerd you're ever likely to meet. <laughs> in fact, you, you can hear it in some of the ways in which he's chosen to train. One of the things that I've always been really fascinated about is something called period performance, where you take the instrument or the ingredients that were being played by composers of that time, and you, you play with those materials. So right now, violins have, you know, nylon strings wrapped in steel, but we used to play on bare gut string, sheep's gut, that was wound from from sinews and made handmade by craftsmen also the bow that we play with you know now the bow is you know this kind of it's like a it's like kind of like a muscle car it, it can produce a ton of sound it's very rich and thick and juicy but the bows of that time were much more delicate and the the, the phrasing was much more precise i mean it sounds like the musical equivalent of the Society for Creative Anachronism. Uh, I don't know if you ever went to Renaissance festivals as a kid, but those guys who, you know. I still go to them. <laughs> but you know, those guys who go out there with padded swords and armor and pretend yeah. to have medieval battles, mm -hmm. right? It sounds like that. But it, it's worth noting that, that Vijay is actually an extremely accomplished musician. Um, and we'll get into that in a moment. But to really understand how far Vijay has come as an artist and as a human being in the world, we have to go back to the beginning. Well, I think that the most respectful place and honest place to start is with, with my parents. Um, so my, my parents emigrated from, from Bengal in, uh, in eastern India uh, in the 1970s. Um, my dad was... Uh, 23, my mom was 17 when they got married. They moved to, to Queens, uh, right outside New York City. And um, I think, you know, for me and for my little brother, um, a lot of our childhood was about fulfilling the dreams of our parents, uh, this very same way that a lot of uh, children of immigrant parents um, see their see their parents make a leap into a void, a leap into an unknown, and they want to emulate that. They see their parents as heroes, and I I certainly did. Um, you know, we uh, the, the children of immigrant parents saw our parents leap into the void, and so of course we wanted to model that. We wanted to leap into the void too, and the way that we knew. To the leap into the void wasn't to leave our home, but to go into the arts. And it was both Vijay's parents, and just as importantly, their culture that really helped to shape his love of music. Uh, but along with that was an awareness that 
music and art is sacred. It's more, it was always more than entertainment. And there's a word in Sanskrit based in the Hindu culture that I grew up in called sadhana. Sadhana is a word which means uh, a daily practice. It could be a daily practice of worship, could be a daily practice of, of yoga or meditation. So to Vijay, growing up, music and art, it was actually considered sacred. And this word sadhana, he keeps going back to, it, it means that his, his practice, his playing, it's more than just that. It's a, it's a kind of an offering to the world. And at a very early age, Vijay discovered that his most natural way of performing his sadhana was with a violin in his hands. And so I started playing the violin when I was three years old, following the Suzuki method. Um, my first violin teacher had an apple orchard in the Mid-Hudson Valley of New York, and I just devoured these books, uh, these, you know, these 10 books of the Suzuki method. And I, I learned a lot of them by ear. And I, I just felt this kind of voracious love for playing that, just playing the instrument, just seeing how my fingers work and my hands work. And um, I think very quickly my, my teachers told my parents that they didn't have any more that they could teach me. So at the age of six, Vijay's parents took him to New York to audition for Juilliard. And he didn't get in that year, but he got in the next year. Wait a minute. How, how old? Yeah, seven years old. I wasn't sure I heard you right. Okay, go ahead. In fact, his first professional appearance came when he soloed for the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra at the age of 11. And throughout all of this, Vijay's love for European classical music began to get deeper and richer as he grew into a young man. And I kind of, I dived into this life of music that was kind of laid out for me, this rich tapestry of classical music that I, I never questioned. I never questioned my belonging in that space because I just loved the music so much. But as Vijay was starting to consider a career in music, reality, as you know, it tends to do, it came right along and just smacked him in the face. And so, you know, you grew up with this, this deep, sacred, reverential love for music. And then you're told, well, okay, but you're gonna go be a doctor. You know, you're going to go be an engineer or a lawyer. And, you know, then, you know, you, you build up all your money, you get safe. And then when you retired, that's when you do your art, right? You know, I went into science because um, my parents essentially sat me down and they said, look, you have a choice. You're going to be a doctor. And that's how they put it. Like, you have a choice. You're going to be a doctor. No, Brandon, you're not a classical musician, nor am I. And neither of us are from East Asian families. But I do believe you and I were both raised reading Mark Twain. Yes. So you know that Twain quote, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Yes. Well. The greatest scientists, I think, are the greatest artists because they ask questions into possibility. And they'll come up with a wild hypothesis about the way they have a gut feeling about how something works, and then they'll present variables. And they'll train out those variables to see what the end results are. And what I realized a couple of years later is that I had been practicing the violin the very same way that I saw some of the researchers that I visited and worked with in labs ask scientific questions. And one of the scientists that I spent time with was a man named Gottfried Schlaug, who was and is a neuroscientist working at Harvard, 
um, who had actually done some incredible studies um, working with patients who had either suffered uh, a stroke or some kind of major brain injury which knocked out their speech center in their brains. Um, and after giving them essentially 80 hours of singing lessons, these individuals had recovered a significant portion of their ability to speak. I mean, you can hear it, right? <laughs> VJ, yeah. he could not stop thinking about music. I mean, he's he'll, he'd probably tell you that he couldn't get away from music, but I'm pretty sure his teachers would tell you he couldn't stop thinking and talking about music. But you know what was incredible about spending time with neuroscience researchers is how many of them wanted to be musicians themselves. And I actually got the most encouragement for becoming a musician from top researchers at labs at places like Harvard or City University of New York. And they would say like, what the heck are you doing here? If you have a chance to go be a musician, then that's what you have to do. And so VJ kind of, he leapt into the void. He went back to study for a while in Connecticut, and then he took an absolute moonshot by auditioning for the Los Angeles Philharmonic, one of the great orchestras in the United States, arguably in the world. And at the ripe young age of 19, he got in. And suddenly he wasn't just a student. He was, he was this, this thing his parents had always dreaded, a professional musician. I used to say I was in shock for two years. I think I was in shock for 10 years because I, I think I grew up in that organization, in, in, that, in that orchestra, surrounded by people who were not only colleagues of my teachers, but colleagues of my teacher's parents. And so there was this you know, intergenerational, cross-generational wisdom that was in this place. And yet, getting a job that young also has a dark side. because I feel like it cut me off of realizing how hard freelance musicians, freelance artists, freelance writers of any kind have to work to understand and cultivate an artistic voice of their own. I was kind of incentivized because I had success very young to not ask really difficult questions of accountability of myself. I mean, truth be told, I wasn't practicing the way that I needed to be practicing in order to cultivate an authentic voice. And for a lot of young musicians, but I think for a lot of young people who are overwhelmed, this kind of manifests in chasing success. Right, chasing the metrics of what every external factor says you need to have um, in terms of making it. And so, you know, along with being pretty terrified, I kind of dived into getting getting quote unquote better at one thing at the at the sort of at the orchestral world. And at the same time, I think I was systematically trying to find my way out of it. <laughs> trying to, you know, trying to like fight. To, to find my way out, but it, it, none of it felt conscious. It felt like I was reacting and not really responding.
And then when I would go home and try to practice, I would have a pile of music that had to be learned for the next week that had to be performed on stage within a week. Now I have to say, this place in which Vijay found himself, it's, it's very familiar to me. You know, memorize, rehearse it, do it. Inevitably, you know, the moment comes when you are confronted with all your habits. The bad ones have to get ironed out, and even the good ones, you start to realize, are more often than not just crutches. And so everything you do starts to feel rote. You, you start to feel lost. And because you haven't yet learned enough about yourself to know what it is about yourself you want to bring to your work, you start to question the very essence of who you are. You know, it's, it's this kind of weird dissonance where here I am on stage four nights a week performing for audiences at, you know, at the top of an artistic practice. And yet, maybe because I was playing with 16 other people playing the same notes I was playing, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what my own artistic musical voice was. And for Vijay, who identifies deeply with his Indian roots, this question of who he was had a whole other level to it than it would to someone like you or I. Mm -hmm. Because the more he thought about this predicament of feeling like he was completely lost. The more I started to ask questions around why do I love this music? Is, is it enough to just do something because you love it? And I vacillated between answers of, you know, playing music written for a very specific echelon of society, for a very specific demographic. And yet I feel such a deep abiding passion and love for this music that it's undeniable for me. But, you know, and, and this is one of the amazing things to me about this life. If you're really listening and open to it, it's those long, dark nights of the soul when something is able to suddenly click into place. You know, as, as an artist, um, I've learned this from my actor friends who are improv artists. You always say yes, right? You always say yes and, right? Right. The, the moment that you stop asking questions, the moment you say no, or the moment that you come up with an answer, the dialogue stops, right? And so often, you know, Eli Wiesel talked about how if we're asking questions of each other, we're having a conversation. The moment that somebody answers the question, the conversation's over, right? And so inherent in the word question is this idea of quest, like where are you going, right? And I didn't know where I was going as a musician. And when I met Nathaniel, I said yes. The Nathaniel VJ is referring to is Nathaniel Ayers. Like VJ, Nathaniel had studied at Juilliard, but his life was eventually derailed by a bout of mental illness that led to a life on the streets of Los Angeles until his story was made famous by journalist Steve Lopez. And their story became the subject matter for Lopez's book, The Soloist, which was subsequently made into the film by Joe Wright starring Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. But at the time, Steve Lopez was writing his book and he was also writing a story about Vijay and because he was hanging out with Nathaniel for the book, and Nathaniel's a classical musician, he would bring Nathaniel to VJ's rehearsals at the Philharmonic. Um, because he was asking questions about how, you know, 
how the music of Beethoven could provide for him a place where he felt understood as a black man who had been homeless for over 30 years on the streets of LA with experiences of severe, you know, paranoid schizophrenia, Beethoven got him. And so he would ask those kinds of questions and he would say, like, why, what is it in the music that makes me feel like I belong here? And I feel like I had been asking that question too. I had always felt a sense of belonging in music that, you know, uh, was presented in a culture that I would never belong to. And so when I met Nathaniel, we just started having a conversation. And that conversation, you know, following this sort of yes and principle started happening first at Walt Disney Concert Hall, but then it happened on the street outside Walt Disney Concert Hall. And then it happened further down the hill in downtown LA in, outside the LA Times building. And then it eventually happened where Nathaniel was living in this community called Skid Row which is essentially still, even through COVID, the largest concentration of unhoused people living in America today. But what Nathaniel taught me was that Skid Row was not only more than a place of urban blight, but Skid Row was a community. Skid Row was his home. Skid Row was a place where he found a sense of belonging and that there were more conversations of recovery and reentry then there were conversations of retribution and punishment that were happening in Skid Row. And so Nathaniel, I think, taught me more than I could ever hope to teach him because he, he opened my eyes to experiences of how the people who we marginalize or who we call the other often are projections of our own worst fears, right? I think that we ostracize and criminalize the most fragile and vulnerable people among us because there's a part of ourselves that is afraid of pain as a part of ourselves that's afraid of going there um, into that place of vulnerability or perhaps place of shame. But we know that the greatest possibility lies in those places too. You know, our connection to whatever that authentic human artistic voice is lies in that place as well. And that was Vijay's lightning bolt moment. The idea of the dark places in ourselves that we try to avoid. When he began to accompany Nathaniel to parts of Skid Row, that idea of place became quite literal. And with his workplace, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, this palatial feat of architecture and soaring beauty just a few steps away, the juxtaposition was, as you can imagine, pretty crazy. And, and Vijay asked himself, why? Why, why, why are we keeping the music locked inside of here? And what I realize now is that there was actually a very you know, a, a, a wise question behind it, but I don't think I realized that it was wise at the time, which is why does power accumulate in one place, right? And the, the, the writer, Eric Liu, talks a lot about how, in, in his book, You're More Powerful Than You Think, talks about how power always accumulates at the top, power always justifies itself, but power is infinite. And he's talking about political power, right? The power of organizing, the, po the power of, of, you know, grassroots community development and organ co cooperative organizing. But I find that artistic and creative power can be described the same way too. So that was the door that Nathaniel opened for me. When I went to Skid Row for the first time, it was sort of by accident, but I felt like I had been punched in the gut. You know, and I wish that I could say I made some altruistic 
evolve a decision to like start a concert series there. But truth be told, I think my motivations were pretty selfish. I wanted to get rid of that feeling, right? I, I, I didn't want to feel that anymore. And I, and I felt like, well, wouldn't it be not only provocative, but actually engaging of that horrible feeling to actually play music here? What would that be like, right? In the middle of all the shit that I was seeing, you know, hundreds of people on the street, people falling out, people screaming. Um, what would it mean to make music there? And inspired by him, I started uh, organizing, you know, sort of benefit concerts in Skid Row for people who were clients of the Department of Mental Health or who were participants in recovery programs at the Midnight Mission. And at the very beginning, this work was kind of charity, right? It was musical charity. We were going in, we wanted to be of service, we wanted to give the best gift that we could, and so we played a bunch of music written by dead white guys for a mostly black audience, right? Right, right, sure. But people listened, and even though they didn't necessarily know the music or the composer, there was something to the novelty of these upper-middle-class musicians suddenly invading their space and saying, hey... I just want to give you this insubstantial thing here in this place for this moment. And unsurprisingly, their audiences responded. But then those audience members would actually go further to ask us questions about ourselves. They would ask us, well, why do you love this music? Why did you actually play it for me? And the truth is, we hadn't been asking ourselves those questions, right? We had kind of been decentivized. You know, from asking those questions in the concert hall or at school. We were just told, well, Beethoven's great, so play Beethoven. But we weren't looking at the human stories of these composers. And so, you know, in a sense, bringing music to Skid Row or a county jail, I mean, I had, I had conversations in a county jail in LA about fatherhood and parenting. And I'm not yet a parent, but my, my dad was ill at the time. Um, and my colleague who was playing with me had a is is a father he has a daughter and i was just seeing this this you know one of the top guitar players in la county uh who's a you know he's he played hamilton he's on every record he's a producer himself sitting there in a county jail having a conversation with a guy in a yellow jumpsuit talking about being fathers and that's a conversation that i don't think would ever happen in a professional space and that conversation is what became the organization that I started called Street Symphony. Street Symphony. Today, it is a well-established NGO that not only brings music to homeless and incarcerated communities throughout Los Angeles, but has begun teaching it as well. But at the time Vijay was first starting this adventure, you have to remember, he was still the new kid on the block, by far the youngest member of the L.A. Phil, and he had to figure out how to convince his colleagues to go and do this seemingly crazy thing he'd cooked up. I had colleagues who were civically minded, who wanted to give back. But at the same time, you know, I sometimes I wouldn't really tell them where we were going or I would say, well, we're going to have lunch afterwards and, you know, colleagues can get colleagues to do things for free if you feed them and that kind of thing. And so there was, you know, a degree of trickery. And there was also, frankly, a degree of provocation in there, too, because I wanted to throw some of my perhaps more jaded colleagues into the deep end and see them squirm and be uncomfortable in a county jail. 
And I think I'm still kind of trying to piece out why I got so much kind of weird joy <laughs> from doing that to my to my friend. Oh, that sounds pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, you know, what sort of emerged for a lot of them, for a lot of my colleagues, they would share with me vulnerably their own experiences of addiction or their own experiences with trauma. And I would get to know a part of my colleague's story that also stayed walled off when we were just on stage, kind of pretending that everything was okay. Give and you get back. It's an old idea. You, you could almost swear it's written on a motivational poster somewhere. And I think we often treat that sentiment as an ideal rather than a concrete truth. And here, suddenly, for young VJ who had been struggling to find his voice, his artistic identity, himself, everything just started to fall into place for him. And so the truth is that Street Symphony became a kind of spiritual journey in learning how to stop performing for myself, right? And learning how to stop lying to myself. And right now I find that the music I love becomes a conduit for telling stories I love. And I love the stories of people who are survivors. I love the stories of people like my parents who have seen incredible hardship and that I find it my calling now to create spaces of belonging through music. Um, but the way that that shows up for me is in making music for people who would never be able to come to a concert hall, who would never be able to step foot in the places that we project the image of classical music onto. And so I make music uh, when I can uh, in shelters and in clinics and prisons and county jails on the street um, and in my studio. And for me, that work is always a kind of santana. It's always a kind of offering. do we really live truly authentic lives on our own terms that give us a sense of fulfillment and meaning, right? And I think at the end of the day, one of the things that we do as artists is engage in the systematic ritualistic killing of our own ego, right? We're, con we're continuously humbled into the next stage of life. Mm -hmm. right, so as we gain the skills and tools and continue growing, how do we also continue to check our ego so that we're not letting that run the show and we're being authentic people in the world. We are all being asked to be accountable to ourselves. And I think about that word accountability a lot because accountability has a dark edge to it where it, it can become retribution, you know, that, well, I'm, I'm going to hold you accountable to that thing, right? Whereas I'm wondering if accountability is actually really about confronting ourselves with our own freedom, mm. confronting ourselves to be the best we can be when no one else is looking. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to get better when there are no more performances happening in public as they are right now? So why grow? Why get better? Why evolve? Well, it's because we have to. <laughs> our, our human purpose, I think the reason why we're put on Earth is to evolve.
in all of this, Brandon, it just, it just helps to clarify for me the fact that music, it, it, it used to be this more immediate thing, right? Like it was, it was normal to expect that you would have dialogue with the person who had just played something for you. How different is, is this? It, it's such a simple thing to take the music out of the concert hall. Very simple idea. But, but what a difference it makes to go from this idea that, okay, I'm going to buy the ticket online that somebody else probably asked me to buy. I'm going to put on my <laughs> suit. I'm going to go to this fancy building. I'm going to sit in these nice little rows of my nice little glossy program, and I'm going to try not to fall asleep. <laughs> to these people bringing the music to the people and saying, here, I want to give this thing to you because you matter, right? And, and, and it's just, it, it's this amazing way, I think, that Vijay found to, to realize his sadhana, his ability to use his music as a true offering. That's what I got out of it. Um, people don't realize how sort of rough and tumble we used to be with art and artifacts up until, you know, only several hundred years ago. And something happened when we decided, I mean, it was good that we wanted to start conserving things, but then they started, they started getting put behind glass and to keep the dust, to keep the dust off of it. And then you lose connection with the maker's of these things, you know, you go to the museum and you look at a, a Stone Age artifact and it kind of takes some work, uh, mental work, or, or you have to study it for a while to put yourself back in touch with, oh yeah, a person made this. There's a story behind this. There's a reason they made this. Yeah, you lose the human connection and you forget why it was made in the first place. Uh, the whole point was to create connections and create stories. A lot of those artifacts were traded and that's how people got to know each other. That's how, got people, that's how people got to know other religions. That's how people got to know other parts of the world. You hand that person an artifact and go, what is this? Oh, let me tell you about one of my gods. <laughs> and, 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 and that stuff was utilitarian. And I think music is, and I think that's the, the experience that Vijay's having with, with music. We've kind of lost that full contact experience of art in favor of this curated, precious, commodified is a really important word here when you're talking about power always concentrating at the top because if you can hide it away from people and there's no other way to get to it, you can charge them a lot more for it. <laughs> and now only and now only wealthy people only wealthy people can go watch Beethoven. And then that all that bit about connecting it to people and it made me that part made me very sad. Because he's right, you know, we, the people that are in Skid Row are projections of our fears. You know, you, you don't want to end up on Skid Row. It's a warning, right? It scares people to think that they may, that may happen. But what we do every time we do that is, yeah, you dehumanize them and you act like there's some other species as though they couldn't understand, you know, what's going on in the concert hall. And they're human, so of course they can understand it. It works the same on everybody. You know, they just, <laughs> they've been kept out.
The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and me, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music by Rena Esmail and Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by Vijay Gupta. The audio of Nathaniel Ayer's performing was at the White House celebration for the 20th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Thank you to Vijay Gupta for taking the time to sit down with us. You can find all of the recordings used in this episode on Vijay's album, When the Violin. We'll include a link to it in our show notes. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>